Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Nadia Oduayo, who is the founder and CEO of The Storygraph. Nadia joins us today from London in the United Kingdom. Nadia Olduayo, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on, Robbie. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. So as you reflect on your experience in our industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Um, I think standard ones come to mind. So the first thing is standard, solid test coverage, I would say. And maybe we can get into it a bit more about what I mean by that. Gem you know, language platform versions being relatively up to date, not too far behind the latest versions, all your security patches. And then I guess documentation for things that need it. So maybe processes or certain things that you need to do routine tasks around the software or to get the software up and running, um, especially if it's a product perhaps used by uh, a lot of users or customers, you might have certain maintenance tasks that you need to carry out. And so docs around how to do that, what to look out for, things like that. Interesting. On the, on the, the topic around documentation, like maintenance type tasks, what are some good some examples that you've seen kind of show up? Um, I guess I think even if I think about my product now, there are some things that so for example, if we have Goodreads imports, for example, so we customers can upload a CSV file to the product and we will automatically import their books and their read statuses and their reviews. Now People can also submit their own files and we have guidelines, but people don't read guidelines or there are so many different encoding versions. So essentially, I have some docs on, say, one of these imports crashes. How do you figure out what's wrong and um, get it running again? So, you know, which stage has it gone wrong and what do you need to do? So something, things like that. There are, as the product has evolved it started as a beta product with thousands of tens of thousands of users and it's now got millions of users so a lot more is automated but in the history of the product there were a lot more things that were a bit more manual in terms of how we would run um, I'm trying to think like even just the book data's improved a lot but we have this popular this week feature and that would that was a daily task that would go through and figure out the most popular books on the app but then because book data on the app has had to be like improved and we've got a lot of volunteers helping us there's almost like a checklist of tasks for like Abby who works with us where it's like every day you know at this time from this time check the popular this week and make sure all the cover images are correct and things like that so those kind of tasks as well can be in terms of maintaining a product as well as just like the underlying software. Right so as far as you know you also mentioned like keeping things updated security patches and such do you are you taking advantage of any automated tools to help you with some of that, or do you is that like part of the process? Like, how frequently are you and your team checking on those things and, and regularly deploying patches with for those types of things when like maybe a small security patch is released for a dependency? So I think something that I think is going to be add some interesting context to this whole conversation is the fact that the app that I build has millions of users, but I'm the only dev. And so that leads to a lot of trade-offs and thought processes in my mind of 
what to do, when to do it, staying up to date with docs and gems and tests. And maybe we can dig into that later. But in terms of keeping software gems up to date, I use either GitHub's built-in, GitHub has some built-in when it comes to um, security vulnerabilities, I know. Um, I think it's dependable or something like that. And then I also use Depfu. So that at least means I'm always aware. <laughs> I'm always aware of what the latest version is. And sometimes I'm very good at going through them all, you know, merging them in, getting CI running and merging them. There's rarely any issues. And sometimes there are times where they build up and then I have to spend, you know, a little bit longer merging in maybe like 15 or 20, making sure everything works well. And so, yeah, I sometimes lag a bit behind. And I was recently very behind on Ruby. I think it took me quite a while to get to Ruby 3, but I've done that now at the end of last year. Um, so, yeah, sometimes it just doesn't feel when I see patch versions come through. Each little patch version sometimes doesn't feel, particularly if it's not a security vulnerability, it can, it, it, I can struggle to prioritize it, but then they build up and I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to just sit down and go through all of these things now. How, how often are you addressing those types of things? Because say, like, I'm not, I'm not sure where you're hosting your application, but uh, this is something that we were talking about recently in my own company was it feels e- easier in some ways for us to help convince our clients that they need to deal with like a Ruby upgrade or some underlying upgrades because their hosting platform, say Heroku, sent a scary email. You know, like uh, in the spring, we're no longer going to support your app or you have one year to deal with this or, you know, you're going to have to replatform, you know, where this is hosted and that's comes with its own cost. So curious, like, is that sort of thing help? play into that? Like when, when vendors are telling you, you need to make the nudge, do you feel like you would be making that nudge? I'm making an assumption here that that might be part of the, the equation there. So is that part of the equation at all in your thinking? More often the push for me tends to be wanting to do a big change or a big new feature and not wanting to do it on software that I know is old. So I've been on Ruby 2, we'd been on Ruby 2.7 for a very long time. And we use Tailwind, and I was about to do a big redesign at the end of last year, I had attempted to upgrade to Ruby 3 sometime in the middle of last year, but I had gem dependency hell with gems that I use to help manage in-app payments on the mobile apps that we have. And there are very few of those tools available. And so I remember just saying, I'll deal with this later you know, months passed and I'm facing this redesign that I want to do at the end of last year. And Tailwind 3 has been out for ages and we're on Tailwind 2. I know that, and we were on Rails 6 as well. So we're on Ruby 2.7, Rails 6, Rails 7's out with all its great stuff. It's got Tailwind built in. And I just got to the point where I don't want to do this massive redesign on Tailwind 2 when I know I need to get to Tailwind 3 just because also there's a bunch of great features in how Tailwind 3 works. And so that was the impetus to finally, I was like, let's start with, let's do the Ruby upgrade. I think it was the Ruby one I did first. Yeah, and then Rails. I think that was the order I did it. I had been seeing inklings of, hey, Ruby 2.7 is going to be end of life at some point in 2023. Just in terms of even just the standard uh, security support, I think it was the Ruby core is not going to support it anymore or something like that. Um, we're, we're not on Heroku any longer, but we were previously. Now we're on Cloud 66. But it was a, I remember feeling like Ooh, we should be off it before then, but I was aware of it. And it felt like as soon as we got to Ruby 3, which, you know, which took a, a little bit of time, 
it felt like suddenly I was seeing all the emails about Ruby 2.7 being end of life and feeling like I did it just in time. Um, so often I, I am aware of all those kind of being within support, but often it tends to be me needing to do a big body of work and feeling like I don't want to invest in doing this on old software when I know that I need to upgrade anyway. You know, one of the things you you had mentioned uh, that you're the only developer working on your software project there, and that it's interesting. Do you think that a lot of that documentation that you're creating is for yourself or for future incarnations of a team? Maybe if maybe I'm assuming that you might want to bring additional support in at some point to help you with it, or or are you actually trying to go down a path that's like I want to see how far I can take this by myself as a developer, CEO of a company, and like how, how do you think about that kind of the trade-off of adding another person, knowing that that's going to be a tricky thing to navigate, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining. Yeah, so, you know, you said, what are the tenets of well-maintained software? In terms of how well I'm keeping up with all of the things I mentioned, questionable. And one of the ones that really has slipped is documentation. I find it really hard to justify doing it for the reasons that you hinted at, which is that I am a solo dev, wherein I started this project in... 2019, at the beginning of 2019. So I'm in the fourth year now. And um, the more that I work on it, the more that I have a co-founder. He is technical, but he's not a, a web or app developer. He's more infrastructure operations. He does all of our machine learning. So he's well versed on that side of things. Some of the documentation that I originally used to do was for him to be able to, particularly, particularly when we were on Heroku, for him to be able to run tasks when I was sleeping. But over time, it's just kind of, I end up doing most of it, all of it, because things are very rarely urgent in that way. And so it just the argument to do, do things that keep up with certain bits of documentation, I just haven't really kept up with that. And sometimes I do wonder whether I need to make more of an effort for two reasons. One is just for me, the code base has now gotten so large that when people ask me questions, so there's Rob, who's my co-founder, and then there's Abby, who works part-time. She's not technical at all. But she'll have questions from customers that, are, that could be, that the answer is based on how something has been technically implemented. Now I have to often refer to my code because sometimes I can't even remember, was that an idea I had? Have I coded that already? Which iteration of this feature are we on? Um, and so sometimes it, there are some things where documentation for me could be useful to jump back in. Although... I also do think that, again, if you've got well-maintained code, you should be able to just read the code and find the answer. And I'm, I th I'm pretty, pretty, pretty quickly, I can typically do that. But then sometimes I also just think about I'm like a single point of failure in a way <laughs> with the code and that I think that any Ruby developer, Rails developer could spend some time with the code base and piece it all together. I don't think anything is too undecipherable, but... If there were docs, it could help someone else ramp up on it a lot quickly. You know, if something happened to me or that kind of thing and, you know, StoryGraph exists beyond me. And then finally, it's the whole, the dream. Originally, I did think, especially when I was solo completely by myself, I did think, oh, I'm definitely going to have to hire a, a, some people to help me. As it's developed and grown as, as it has, and I've been able to maintain the code by myself, it's almost become more of a dream of like, wow, if I could keep doing this and it keeps growing and being profitable, then that's the best place to be in if I don't need to hire somebody. But 
if we ever did need to hire somebody, I feel like the point at that we need to, it would feel quite urgent and pressing. And so it does kind of concern me that then there would be a lot of either docs that I don't have or, or context that would be needed. But again, I still feel like I guess pairing with someone on the code base would substitute the the lack of docs. This is assuming that I'm around and that, you know, <laughs> to help. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, I always think about the uh, number of different people that I know that are running kind of solo businesses. And I'm someone that set up a company and we have employees. I'm not coding day in and day out. And there's a part of me that realized, like, oh, I'm like, I've, there's a, there's a little bit of a difference between like creating your own job and, you know, you've given yourself a task. I'm like, I'm going to manage this. I'm going to do this, you know, the bulk of the software myself and then bringing other people in. There's a whole other level layer of complexity and management skills that you need to have fall into that. And the thing I always think about that I'm wondering what it's like to be in your type of, in your, your shoes is like about vacations, time off, you know, you know what I mean? Like, what is that? Are you able to do that with the, the, have you been able to design the software and the product in a way that allows you to take days away where you don't have to be super close to the code base? Um, One of the things that I have celebrated recently um, with Rob, particularly over the new year period, which is our, busiest period because everybody gets excited about oh I'm g- I'm going to read so much this year you've got your new year's resolutions reading goals people got books for christmas that kind of thing so everyone we see our biggest highest traffic days the year prior so i 2021 to 2022 um was awful because our we couldn't handle the load and same with the the year before that we just couldn't handle the load and we spent two weeks just trying to get the website and app just to run smoothly. And we had made a lot of changes in the aftermath of that. And our goal, when we were doing our goals for the year, and and we do this exercise where we say, what do we want to be true on January 1st, insert following year? And so we, we had this, one of our goals after the year prior was for Jan 1st, 2023, we wanted to say that we partied on New Year's Eve and like the app ran smoothly. And it's funny because Rob and I are not really partiers, but the 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 meaning behind it was that we would be able to not have to actively monitor the website and app. And um, so we'd made all these changes, but we couldn't, and we had an idea that they would work, but we couldn't properly test it until the day came around. And essentially all the infrastructure changes we'd made meant that we had five to 6,000 simultaneous users on the website and app at one time and it was just running smoothly and our benchmarking implied that we could double that and still be fine um, whereas the year before we'd had 3,000 and the you couldn't even use the website it just wasn't working so this is all to say that in practice or in theory rather we could not do I'm at the point with the app now and with the infrastructure where we have over 100,000 unique hundreds of thousands of unique visitors, million million page views a day, and we don't need to do anything and it will just run right now. The the only thing that might happen is if if Goodreads imports get broken or if there is a particular bug on someone's account, you know, that won't be resolved. But in terms of just the day-to-day running, it will be fine. In practice, though, (laughs) I'm still at the point where with the product where right now we're known as the main Goodreads alternative But, you know, it's a competitive space. There's lots going on in and there's a lot of ideas that we have. And so I don't, I am not seeking a vacation right now in the sense that I'm like, there's a lot to do on the product. I want to keep working. I want to keep building. So if anything, what I kind of day to day, I just incorporate a lot of balance in my days. So 
I, if anything, I'm often thinking to myself, should I be working more? You know, I go to dance class pretty regularly. I'm in the gym a few times a week. I read every day. I see friends and family. So I never feel, I feel like I'm protecting myself from burnout on that front. But I know, um, and I had a thing recently where I unexpectedly had to travel out of the country for a few days and I, I hardly did any work for basically a couple days and everything ran fine. So... I remember I was at dinner, a dinner with my brother and sister over the New Year period. And my brother, who lives in New York, said, oh, thank you for coming out. Because he knows, oh, it's a very busy time for, for Nadia. And I said to him, you know, the goal is not for me to be working all the time. The goal is to get to the point where if I want to take two weeks off of Christmas, during Christmas, even though it's our busiest time, I can because the app is just running. So that's that's where... I'm trying to get to. And I believe we are pretty much there. If anything, the pressure to do more is just knowing that we've got all of these ideas and all of these ways that we can still improve the product and the software. Um, and we just want to get those ideas out. We'll be back with our interview with Nadia in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. As always, I just want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations, yada, 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 valuable, blah, 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 please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now let's get back to our interview with Nadia Olduayo. You know, as you were talking about the the goals, and you know, if you're open to sharing, did you come up with another goal for January first, twenty twenty four? Are you actually going to party this next year, or? Yeah. Um, so we we've got a bunch of goals around. So we do two versions. We say like, what do we want to improve on this year, and what do we want to be true on Jan first? So this time it's twenty twenty four. The latter category tend tend to just be like, wouldn't it be nice if? So for example, we handled five over five thousand concurrent users this year on Jan first. So one of the ones in a year's time is, can we handle four times that many? Would we see can would we see a four x growth and be able to handle like twenty thousand users? Because we know we can handle ten thousand right now simultaneous. That is, um, so that's one of the ones where wouldn't that be great if? Infrastructure performance-wise, we can quadruple the number of people that we can comfortably support. And then in terms of just other things, so one goal for me is UX UI. So that's never been my strong point. I'm, I would say like I, w- I went to software boot camp. So I've always identified as a full stack in that, you know, I can do JavaScript and HTML, CSS, front end stuff. But I've always been more Ruby focused. And so one of my product goals for Storygraph is that we get to a level of polish and excellence on the UX and UI such that we're just the kind of feedback that we get from users is only positive or overwhelmingly positive in that regard of like, it's just easy to use. I I know how to find everything. Everything feels smooth. And we're not bad on that front, but definitely last year there were certain things that were really like UX issues that was the priority of our problems. And and that is what pushed for that redesign that I mentioned. But that was just the first phase and we've got more to do. And then just error, I want to, we have, a, I've got Bugsnack hooked into my um, tracker. I, I actually use Pivotal Tracker. It's quite funny. My first and only software job was at Pivotal, Pivotal Labs. 
so I just always use Pivotal Tracker, even when it's like a one-person team. It's su- such like overkill for just a one-person <laughs> team. But um, I see all the random exceptions and things like that. And one of my goals is to just like stay on top of those because sometimes those build up and it can feel like, again, oh, one or two people hit this edge case. But I kind of want to get to the point where it's almost like I'm cleared out the bug snack inbox and then you know exceptions like that are few and far in between and and I'm able to just get on top of them quickly that's one of my goals for this year so going into next year I want that I want to not have so many like bug snack tickets sure sure you know it's interesting the uh point around you know using pivotal tracker just had a conversation with another guest recently and that episode's not yet published but the they were talking about the importance and projects of having some traceability in terms of knowing where why code changed for what do you for when it changed or for what purpose do you even though you're a solo developer on your project are you referencing specific you know I figure what the terminology they use in pivotal tracker are those cards or something like that stories so do they have like some numeric you know number that you were able to then associate, do you do that in your Git commit messages and everything or? I don't link them to my Git commit messages. And actually, when we talk about this topic, something that I do do is, you know, I, I really take care with my Git commit messages. And then in Pivotal Tracker, I actually, I log my work. I, I make sure things are properly classified as features, bugs or chores. When I come, I actually, when I close out stories, I actually add notes to myself. And I actually, so if I think about it, I didn't really think about it in this way before, but I guess there is a lot of documentation via my Pivotal Tracker project because you could search for features and then you can see when I did it, how long it took, um, the history of any comments that are in there. Abby, who is the person who works for us, who I said isn't technical, she will, I've gotten her into adding bugs and chores into Pivotal Tracker. Um, And so you can see the conversation between us. So I actually think that does give us a lot of context there. So yeah, I I actually do leave notes for myself, whether it's while I'm working on a story or after when I wrap something up or if I'm explaining why something, I'm closing a story. Having said that, from my time at Pivotal, I'm very much of the, I don't want to be very precious about the stories in there. I'm very much one of those people that wants to be able to just delete the icebox because it's kind of like, if something's important, it will come up again. Um, And I've definitely, yeah, I've definitely, even when working with Abby and Rob, there have been times where the, you know, sometimes they want to keep something in there because it's kind of like, oh, this was mentioned, I don't want to forget. But I'm very much more on the whole side of, we have just got hundreds of things in here now. It's just me. It's not as it's not just as impressing as it seems because sometimes you can hear something from one customer and it's how they say it and it feels very important, but then you realize it's not. And so as much as there is a lot of documentation for work that I have done, I'm also not precious about things that are in there. Um, if I feel like, okay, we just need to clean this up. We need a blank slate. Um, and, you know, if this is this is a bug or a problem, but ultimately in the priority list, it's not going to be reached for months or years. And if it does become a pressing point again, we're going to know about it. Uh, We have got so many different inputs of feedback and bug reports and things like that. And so we will, we, we have a sense when something needs addressing more immediately. I want to dig into that a little bit. The idea of going back and feeling comfortable just to wipe out a bunch of things in the icebox, you know, your backlog or, you know, what everybody might have different companies might have people, different places might have different things. And like one of the, things that I often think about is that 
product owners will put things in and then there's kind of like this waiting thing before it can get prioritized or it gets, you know, lots of things happen within like with a, if you had a development team and there's several people, sometimes you just assume that the thing you're getting tasked with is still valuable and still important because it's been, it's been sitting in the backlog for such a long time or, or the icebox. And, you know, when you are able to decide, you know, co-founder, CEO of your company, this isn't important anymore. I know that I added this, or I know that we talked about this three months ago. It's been sitting there waiting and like, do we really still feel the same now that we did then? And is this really important? Can we kick it off and then just decide to just remove it entirely or just delete it, what have you? Do you find that you're doing that because you need to carve out some mental space in some ways? And like, we just can't have this looming glacier of ice things in the ice box how do you think about that like just to is that a good practice because it's helping you focus and like to refocus or is it just actually think it's an important part of the process like we should just trim stuff on a regular basis yeah that's a great question so one thing that came to mind as you were talking is that I am the developer, I am also the product manager, I am also the product owner, and I also do social media. So I have a sense of the pain points that the customers are feeling. And then I'm also the person that put most of the stories in there, apart from the bug snag ones. <laughs> and then I'm also the person that's going to deliver them. A big part of when I want to do a cleanse, it's twofold. Part of it is this idea of, I think if you're when you're building a product, particularly as a startup, you don't want to, you want to make sure you've got focus. You want to make sure that you are working on one or a very small handful of things at any one time. Um, you don't want to also, I think it can, you can also get lost in fixing bugs that aren't critical to the, to moving the product forward as well. And so for all these things, I think it is a good practice to be able to wipe away things that aren't important. But then the argument could be, well, sure, just don't prioritize them in the backlog, but keep them in the icebox. And then I think it does come down to when I look at the icebox and it's got hundreds of things in there, it's unnecessarily sometimes overwhelming or unnecessarily feels like things are worse than they are, if you see what I mean, when they're not. And so it, there is an aspect of just for me managing my mental space and also reminding myself that actually it's not important. When you see the glaring red bugs, it can feel like, oh, there's a lot broken. But really, yes, there is a lot broken, but a lot of people are happily using the product. And so like clear it away just so that you're not getting distracted by it. And uh, it's almost like tidying up your table kind of thing. So I think there are aspects of both. I think, you know, for a healthy, particularly a startup that you want to be responsive, it's good to do that. And I also think it's also good to do it in the sense that it just means that you almost make room for things that could be higher priority. Because I think sometimes when something's been there for a long time, you can also, sometimes I can look at something and think, oh, maybe I should just do this because I've been looking at it for like three months now, six months now, let me just do this. And sometimes, sometimes some things can have an emotional aspect to it too, particularly if you directly spoke to the customer who had it and you know, oh, this would be nice for them. And I really want to send them an email and say, I've fixed this now. But really it's kind of like, it's in the grand scheme of things, it's not a priority. What I, what I do do sometimes, though, is that when I have said to a particular customer, 
I will let you know when I fix this. I can't promise when it will be. I do pop their email or their Twitter handle in the story and I don't I don't delete those because I, I do feel like I've kind of made a promise here. But I try and avoid doing that as much as possible. <laughs> and then I would just maybe advocate, it's okay for you to reach out to people like, I've decided that we're not going to do this. At least you're being honest, you know, rather than being forgotten too. That, it's, it's an interesting challenge there. I think they'll weigh that up in your as you said, you're wearing several different hats at the same time. Do you find yourself going down rabbit holes that maybe other your colleagues might be like, that wasn't important, but you, it was scratching your itch in a way that you're like, I needed to take care of this because because you could or because if you're working. I, I find I'm, I'm saying this as someone that will often kind of go down like all of a sudden like in a weird time, like on a Friday afternoon, I just start going wild on a project and I'm like, I'm just doing, I'm just breaking the process. I'm going to start to work on this thing and then this thing. And I'm like, oh, I probably should put some tickets in for that, but I just did it, you know? And I'm like, wow, this probably seems wildly reckless to other people on my team because I'm like violating all of our process. I'm like, I just merged it and push it to production before I go, before I leave for the weekend. And do you do things like that? Tell me it's okay. I mean, I guess it's my business. <laughs> I mean, I think we're in a slightly different situation because I am not impacting anybody else when I push on a Friday or a Saturday or a Sunday. But there have definitely been times where I start on a, something. I'm trying to think of an example. But I'll start on a, a certain feature and then I'll say, oh, but I should do this first. Or let me do this at the same time while I'm here. I've gotten pretty good at not doing the the latter one, the let me do this while I'm here, even though I'm like, I'm, I'm right here and we need to do this other thing. Sometimes I'll do some prerequisite work and then I'll reflect and say, did I really need to do this before doing that? But what I do, which is super helpful, is having Rob. I'm, I'm pretty good at communicating at the beginning of the week what my goals are for the week and why, why I've prioritized. And then we talk every day. So I'll often say, today I'm doing this. And at the end of the day, and that kind of checks me on on not adding in superfluous things or, or having an argument for why this is a priority. So even though I'm the only one working on the code base I, and I'm in, in charge of all that, um, I still have some accountability from my co-founder, even though he is not actively working on the code base and he, you know, he's not looking at the git commit messages or anything like that. He's just like, cool. It's, you know, and he might, he rarely questions because again, we have, we have a super high trust, but even just the act of me preparing to tell him makes me question, actually, do I need to do this as well? This is not a priority. Hi there. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Maintainable. While you've been listening, has anyone crossed your mind who might be looking for help with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon, the producer of Maintainable Podcast, would love to meet them. In fact, we've got a pretty sweet referral bonus program set up. If you send someone our way and they sign up for Planet Argon services, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And your reward? We'll send you $1,000 just for connecting us to the right person. Sounds like a win-win for everyone. Head on over to planetargon.com forward slash referrals for more info. That's planetargon.com forward slash referrals. All right, let's get back to this week's episode. (laughs) 
something I um, was thinking about in prepping for this conversation, and I think it helped highlight, I wanted to make sure we dig into this because you mentioned you worked at Pivotal Labs, uh, their consulting firm. Do you feel like you have a different perspective on how to oversee the development of your own product that might differ from those who only worked at, say, a product-based organization? Mm, that's an interesting one because I think Pivotal Labs almost offered a product itself, if that made sense. I felt like we took the same practices and applied it to pretty much every product. So I still think that, like how I code today and how I think about breaking down stories and tasks and estimation and acceptance. When I say acceptance, I mean, you know, when you've delivered a story and how you accept it and all that, all that kind of stuff. I think that comes from Pivotal, but I would say um, even product product management and how I approach that and prioritization, that still comes from what I learned at Pivotal. So I would say that it has influence, but not in the sense that I would say Pivotal Labs was selling a product, actually. And the product was, we're going to give you at least a pair of developers and we're going to help you like figure out what your, it depends on the stage of your company whether you know but assuming you've got the product already we're going to figure out what the what the goal is break out some stories prioritize them estimate them you know be responsive be able to adapt with feedback do customer research tie that in so I feel like I'm so glad that that was my experience in the software world because I feel like I've picked up picked up so many great practices that even as a one-woman dev team I'm still like able to apply and I think it's led to you know the success of my product particularly where you know things like focusing in on one trying to break up a story in as small proponent as possible and then what I mainly picked up from colleagues as well is just like customer research practices and getting that feedback and learning how to use that to help prioritize and work on what to deliver next those kind of things have really helped the trajectory of the product that's great. You know, also working in the consulting space, uh, I think about it in terms of, you know, like I am not a product person personally in the sense that I don't have like the maker. I'm, I'm more of a mender than a maker and I like improving things. And so like other people have the creative ideas and I'm like, I'm happy to come in and help polish that stuff up later down the road. So if you need someone to help out, you know, in the future, so you can take a vacation, give me a call. Um, but beyond <laughs> that, um, but the, uh, the, the thing around, if that being a product in and of itself, what Pivotal you know, offers there, even that though, it was like you're working in pairs typically, right? And so how has that changed your development process? Do you feel like you have, do you pretend that you have someone there that you're talking? Do you have a rubber deck on your desk that you talk to on a regular basis? How do you, how do you adjust from probably a, a high level of collaboration and peer review, pull request process maybe, things like that, that you know, that you're, now needing to navigate as a, as a one-woman development person on the project, right? So that, how is that? How do you miss that, or do you actually find that you're excelling in a lot of other ways too? Now, I I loved that my the bulk of my software career was pairing. Like I I really did love it. I went into Pivotal though as a junior developer, so oh, straight out of boot camp is what I mean by that. So everyone I was working with was more experienced than I was. And I remember that for one of the projects I was staffed on, it was actually a startup. It was a Rails startup. And they, I mean, we typed in Rails new for this startup, which is still running today. And someone that we helped hire is like their CTO now. And he messaged me a year or so back 
And he, because this, this was in 2014 or 2015, and he messaged me a year or so back showing me that they're still using the same code base and I've, you know, authored some of those early commits. Anyway, this is all to say that I remember that because we, it was me and a, another guy was staffed on that project and they needed to hire a technical, their first developer. So when we did hire that guy, we ended up with a team of three. So we couldn't always pair. And I remember having some days where I was working by myself. And I remember originally being incredibly scared because I was worried, I was nervous, what, you know, you know, just working on this code base by myself. But I remember those days and I remember feeling so free and feeling like just more free to make mistakes and ask questions. And I remember that project thinking, I love Pivotal Labs and how it's set up and I love that we've got this whole pairing structure. But as someone who was inexperienced, I wished there was more room to have solo moments to just be a bit free and just to just to you know try something maybe without having to articulate it first and see it fail and figure out why and I know that the very best pairs allow you to fail and give you space to figure it out but it's not the same it's not the same when someone's there so this is all to say that I don't miss um having a pair 24 7 it's great. I love when I can, especially when I'm working on a new feature and it's all very nice and easy. It's so much fun just being able to move fast and, you know, you know, just simple crud stuff and all that stuff is still so fun. But it is tough having a pair when you're in the middle of a debugging a, a situation and you can't figure out head or, head or tail of it. That's where it's the most painful. And I am fortunate in Rob in that, he is a great pair in that he can, he'll listen very well. And even though he can't code it and he doesn't necessarily understand the code himself, he knows the right questions to ask to help me get back on track or to help me figure it out. The number of times, whether just explaining it to him or him saying, what about this or what about that? Or him using his general technical knowledge to say, um, you know, he can do Python, so he he can ask certain questions that will just say, well, if I was looking at this in Python, I might look here or that kind of thing. So that is super helpful. You know, sometimes it would be nice to have, uh, and I have paired with Ruby Rails friends before on on a couple of issues, but I try and avoid doing that. I'm a very like independent, also like, you know, it's my company, it's business, it's work. Like I don't want to, all my friends have jobs and I know that they're always so happy to help and and they're always, you know, reaching out to say, if you need me, but I'm I'm always wary of falling into that too much. But yeah, I would say that um just when you get into a big issue, like there's having a, a great pair is is kind of invaluable. And I'm lucky that I do have an aspect of that in Rob, even though he can't actively drive, which would be nice sometimes. It would be nice to be able to sit back and to have someone else drive and I can just kind of, you know, think and make pointers. No, I I, I can appreciate that. You know, do you sharing that story about how that's kind of evolved and you're thinking about pairing and like being able to give your afford yourself the time to get lost in the problem and like really try to sink in it and hit your head against the wall several times and not quite figuring it out there is it's a it's an interesting thing for me when I'm pairing with say someone else on the team and they're debugging something I always sometimes if, if it's like this weird thing where like if I help them figure out what it is that they're struggling with. Cause I usually get pulled in because it's like, I'm usually like the second or third person that gets called in to help out on something. If like the other team's like, we're kind of throwing their hands up. They're like, maybe Robbie has an idea. 
And then there's always this thing that I see happen where I will, I might ask a question and, or I might point them towards something. And then let's say that I'm not always successful, but sometimes they do figure it out. And then they sometimes worry that they're feeling dumb because they didn't figure it out themselves. And like, Oh, it took Robbie to do this. And like, which makes me feel like, oh, great, I have like a bunch of knowledge in the back of my head that I never know how to articulate out until like the problem arises. Because it's like, they're like, how did you know to do that? I'm like, I don't know. It's just more of like pattern recognition. I can't write a book on how to debug all problems in software development. It's just things that have happened that I probably buried and compartmentalized with some trauma in my life. And it'll just pop up one day because you're doing something weird and like, oh, that might be some weird Nginx thing. I have nothing to do with the Rails app. Let's go look at that. And they're like, I wouldn't have thought to look at that. And I'm like, I only know that because we used to have to do this stuff manually all the time 15 years ago. So you don't have to know about what the, what Nginx even is anymore. It's an interesting stuff like that that pops up. I'm like, I don't know how to train people on that stuff because it's like how people come into the industry. You, know, you mentioned going through like a boot camp and like you pick up things and you get exposed to the projects you're exposed to. And then there's going to be some scenarios where there's stuff that you've never had any exposure to that will be part of an ecosystem of an application. And that's, it's an interesting thing where I'm like, I don't know, you're going to have to Google Stack Overflow and maybe, maybe someone will have some left, some trails that will like spark a thought in your head or something, but it's, it's a, it's a tricky thing. So it's good that you're able to have that. I think on the, the point of people offering to help out or pair with you at times, my, what I would advocate for, if, if you ever were to consider it, like tell them you'll do that, but you'll have to pay them so that there's not this weird exchange of like, you know, like I will pay you for your, you know, for your an hour. Like there needs to be some sort of like agreement there. And then that way it can feel maybe less like you're like free extra labor for you or something. Yeah, 100 percent. But on that, just to touch on the point you just made, I experienced that a lot when I started out being someone who's just been at boot camp, joining Pivotal Labs, especially because I originally started working on Cloud Foundry, which was their platform as a service. So it was a lot of distributed systems, um, cloud platforms, just things that I didn't even have a like a concept of in my head. And I remember asking people, asking my pair several times, but how did you know to try that? How did you know to do that? And it was something that I you grappled with for a while. And I remember there was one time... I was working on something with someone and we were stuck. We weren't sure what to do next. And then I realized, oh, because this this person had like five more years experience than I had done. And it was the first time where we'd both been stuck. And we had this thing of, wow, we don't even know the full scope of the domain to even know what the the issue could be. And that's when it hit me, especially now having been in the software industry for like about nine years now. It is just that thing of, as you keep working in the industry and you get exposed to more things, you just get, you know, it's just, it's experience. It is, it is that thing of you've just been exposed to more things. You pattern match. You're like, oh, this sm- smells like, or this sounds like. You just get that. And I, I definitely struggle with that when I was like, you know, my first year of my career, my first couple of years. And then just realizing that, oh, right, okay, over time, I will pick up more and more techniques, more and more things to look out for. Um, And even as recent as, you know, the last few years with Storygraph, like learning things about databases that I didn't even know um, were things like IOPS (laughs) and, and burstability and things like that, which had me stumped for weeks and had the product at a standstill. But I didn't even know what to look for. So, yeah, I've felt that a lot. I know that one of the things, you know, in prepping for this, you know, you mentioned, like, you mentioned the database. 
challenges that you you needed to kind of wrap your head around and know, even knowing what questions you should even be asking outside of like, do I just need to optimize maybe some queries in the database? Am I missing some database indexes? And there's maybe something completely different, you know, at play here, like maybe the hardware you're using or, you know, what, you know, there's a lot of other factors that can come in. Like a lot of that stuff I don't even understand despite my, my lengthy experience in the industry either. What did you learn from that sort of process? And like, how do you draw the line between, you know, we hear a lot in our industry about like avoiding premature optimization, but where's that that line for you between something maybe that's premature optimization and maybe what I might argue is proactive optimization? That's a tough one. Rob and I discuss this all the time when it's a case of, um, particularly because when we have spikes and things like that, sometimes it can feel like we're hitting the, the extent of our like hardware thresholds. In general, if the app is working fine for the people who are using it, then we don't need to optimize anything in general. And in general, we'll say, I like to say, don't try and solve for a pain point unless you have it, unless you're experiencing it. Now, there are some things that we do, particularly because we run some of our infrastructure ourselves. There are some things where we, whether it's a, a code thing where I'm like, I know this doesn't really scale um, and it might take me some time to rewrite it or it might take us some time to provision some new servers or things like that, where then we'll have a discussion of, should we take this time now? Should we spend Should we spend this money now? But ultimately, because there are so many other more immediate priorities, I think we just say to ourselves in general that ultimately we've had cases in the product's history where things have been rubbish for a couple of weeks and we've always survived it. Because ultimately, if you're building a product that people want to use and you, you're you quite transparent, that's another thing. We're very transparent. So when we have slowdowns, when we have things like that, you know, I've done screenshots of our sidekick queue before when we had this, the first big spike we had. We had, you know, 20,000 people waiting for their Goodreads imports and we had to pause the whole queue. And we, we I did a screenshot. This is what it looks like. We're trying to get them to you as quickly as possible. And I think what we've learned is that customers are patient when you're, tra- when you're transparent with them and they understand what's going on. They, they, they're super understanding. So this is all to say that I really try and avoid premature optimization because mainly because you might end up optimizing for the wrong thing. Like you, you, you don't, you might try and scale up something when really you need to rewrite something or like the, the database thing you mentioned is the perfect example where we thought at one point that we just needed to keep throwing money at it and just get on bigger and bigger Heroku plans. And we could have easily um, just said, like, let's just get on the biggest plan and we'll be fine. But when it came down to it, that wasn't the problem. It was that we didn't understand how write-heavy all of our operations were. And so as all these Goodreads imports were coming in, the technical, the technical, what's it called? Not criteria, the technical specifications of, of the plans that we were using were just never going to handle the amount of work that was coming in on the database at any one time. But we didn't even know that was a thing. And so really I just try and avoid premature optimization because you often can just end up optimizing for the wrong thing. So then you waste time anyway or money. Um, but as long as the app is working fine for the current use space, then I say there's nothing more to do. Until such time I start seeing things are lagging or people are complaining about speed and then I'll look into it. That's that's interesting. The another thing you had mentioned earlier as well was the things that come in from bug snag and you know, just knowing the Ruby on Rails and JavaScript ecosystem that's probably I'm assuming is part of, you know, the equation there. Do you 
when it comes to like the things that are coming in from Bugsnag, is there, do you find that they're mostly on more of the JavaScript side of things or more so on the Ruby side of things that you're encountering? Or is it kind of 50-50-ish? More so on the Ruby side of things. But that could also just be how I've got it hooked up. I'm trying to think of how I've got it hooked up, but it's definitely more Ruby. A lot of error handling, like random format or template errors, things like that. I, I tend, I'm pretty, I handle 500s like immediately when I see those. I, 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 I handle those straight away. It's, it's just one person having it, it crash. It doesn't matter. I, I'll fix those. But there are a lot of other things that feel like, like edge cases or, I mean, they're all 500s, but I mean, in terms of when it's like, someone saw a blank page or someone, you know, someone got a, this isn't working, then I'll handle those. If it's a kind of like a one-off, maybe on the front end, the user, they probably noticed they had to click something twice maybe or, you know, something like that, then I might, I'll weigh it up. But um, I definitely am straight on anything where it's like, even if it's an edge case for someone, but they can't access the homepage because their progress tracking got in a weird like infinity case, you know, then I'll, I'll just look at it straight away. Hey, it's Bobby again. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say, hey, did you sign up for our new newsletter yet? If you haven't, head to maintainable.fm and click the link in the navigation for newsletter. You'll get some behind the scenes details about upcoming episodes. And I'm going to also share details about some of my favorite episodes from the past. So head to maintainable.fm and subscribe to the newsletter and tell your friends. And now let's get back to our interview, Nadia Olduayo. For our listeners that might not be familiar with, you know, you mentioned that it's a Goodreads competitor in that space. If Can you keep, want to give a quick little pitch of what, what the product is and who amongst our listeners might find some benefit in taking a look at it and giving it a, give it a play? Yes. Yeah, so the company, the product is called the Storygraph. Storygraph on the App Store and Play Store or the Storygraph.com. And it is an alternative to Goodreads. So we say that we help you to choose your next perfect book based on your moods and any topic or themes that you're interested in. So essentially, if you use Goodreads, you can load in all your data. We've got this great stats dashboard where you can see what kind of moods are you reading, the pace of the books, what genres, the authors, fiction, non-fiction split. If you listen to audiobooks, you can see the audiobook length. Um, you can see the languages that you read in. If you read in several different languages, you can see your, the distribution of your star ratings, things like that. But the things with our recommendations, you can write in specific topics, themes, and tropes that you're into. So you could just, you can say anything about whether you're looking for, um, I don't know, wizards and funny wizards, I don't know, or like if you're into romance, enemies to lovers, things like that. So you can put in, or if you're into like financial fraud or corruption or just certain countries, the history of certain countries, things like that. Like I've recently read a book about like corruption in Soviet Russia and things like that. So that's something that you could put into your survey to find other books. Um, and then we've got all these filter menus around the app where you can basically say, check boxes and say, I'm in the mood right now for something funny, fast paced in these genres fewer than 300 pages, what have you got? And depending on where you're doing that, you might be filtering down a list of books that your friend has read, or you might be filtering down recommendations. So then we'd also take into account 
do your survey and your other preferences. Um, or you might just be filtering down your to-read pile. And we've got a bunch of other features. So reading challenges where it's kind of like, you know, people have different prompts for books. We've got buddy reads where you can read a book alongside a friend or up to eight friends. And essentially you can leave comments as you read, uh, but they're hidden for everyone until they get to that point in the book. So basically it's like a live book club where you're discussing every detail without spoiling it for anyone else. And we've just got a bunch of features that just basically make the whole reading book recommendations and book tracking experience more personalized and just more, like I said, we're really trying to help you find your next perfect book. So there's content warnings. Um, you can do half and quarter star ratings. So I would say it's for any anyone who who is either already an avid reader and is like, oh, I either already have a bunch of books and I don't know which one to pick up next or I'm actually looking for inspiration or if you're someone who's just wanted to read more and doesn't know where to start, we're a great, you know, you go on the story graph, within five minutes you'll have a new book to read that you want to read. We've also got giveaways. They're open worldwide. We're, it's a, we're currently beta testing it right now. So you can win books anywhere in the world, both print, digital or audio. So you can, again, there's a filter menu there. So you can filter down and find books available in your country um, and enter to win. So I would say check out the storygraph.com, the landing page. There's a lot of, there's a whole comprehensive overview of what we have to offer. And uh, give it a go, especially if you use Goodreads. It's kind of very easy to just do the import just to uh, see, see your stats. I think that's the thing. A lot of people come in that way. They'll just import their Goodreads data and uh, see the stats. And then they're like, hooked so um, and if you don't like it you can delete your account and all of your data in three clicks so um, I always say if you're curious give it a go let me know what you think sounds great yeah I'll definitely include link to that in the show notes for everybody you know which kind of leads me into one of the last questions I like to ask everybody is there a non-software non-technical book that you personally Nadia often find yourself recommending to people but not what your algorithms tell people oh yes um because there's a, there's my nonfiction, which is kind of like, it's not the best book ever written, but I think the lessons in the book are amazing and I wish everybody read it. And that's Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. So it's all about how you can be direct and honest with feedback or with difficult conversations in a way that leads to productive, the productive response from the other person and doesn't lead them to being defensive. Um, so it's, you know, it touches on feelings and what feelings actually are and how to communicate those feelings needs and then like you know requests um and I just think it's an amazing framework and I wish more people read that book because after reading that book and then one hearing other people around you and realizing why some conversations go down a certain non-helpful path but also just trying to communicate yourself and realizing how hard it is and maybe certain things that you do that that puts the other person on the defensive so that is one book that I would recommend. And then just for like a fun, I'm trying to think, I've got I've read some great books recently, just a fun, I'm going to just recommend my current favourite fiction novel, which is 800, 900 pages, but it is called The Eighth Life for Broca. And it covers like 100 years, again, Soviet Russia period, Georgia. It's got, um, and it's just like a multi-generational family saga sort of thing and honestly a book that long I just assumed there would be points where I would be bored and I was never bored it was amazing magical story and so yeah I would I would check that that one out excellent I'll include links to both of those in the show notes for people um, and maybe we can even get some links I'm assuming your uh, 
Storygraph has unique URLs for books? Yeah, we have we have those, and we have um, affiliate links to Bookshop dot org and Blackwells and Libro dot FM. Sorts of indie alternatives. Thank you. That's that's great to hear. I I live pretty close to the the largest independent bookstore in the U.S. It's called Pals. Wait, where is that? In Portland, Oregon. Oh, it's important. No, okay, yes, awesome. No, I've not I've not been there, but I wanted to go there. Yeah, it's a it's a it's an experience that everybody that comes to Portland definitely needs to, to check out for sure. It's a huge store. Have you read any great books lately? Ooh, putting me on the spot. Um, I'm actually reading um, a recently released uh, biographical book by Stuart Brothwaite from Mogwai. The, it's a band from um, Scotland. It's, I'm reading that right now. I, f- I forget the name. It's like something called like Satellites Over or Spaceships Over Glasgow or something like that. I have to go back and look it up. But yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. So yeah. Okay, awesome. I, I know the ba- of the band, but I don't know anything about them in detail, but cool. It's basically a story about a, you know, a band from the 80s and a lot of drugs and alcohol problems and you know, the things yeah, that pop up in bands. Yeah, that stuff, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm super geeking out about hearing when he got to meet all his like, favorite musician heroes and stuff like that and getting to play with them. And I'm like, that's, that's pretty cool. Awesome. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Nadia. Thank you so much for stopping by the talk shop and, and, and sharing a little bit of background behind what's happening behind the scenes over at the Storygraph. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Oh, 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 oh.